We are now joined by Dr. Martin Marin, who is up in Massachusetts. And we thank you for joining us, Marty. And what's going on up in Massachusetts? Well, first of all, hello, everyone. Always a great opportunity and honor to help participate in these educational events with Lisa. Yeah, I'm in Boston. Many may know our area is also being hit pretty hard by COVID. We're starting to see more and more cases in the hospital with some pretty sick people. We are doing the best we can with that. Like everybody else, it's a challenge. I've been mostly at home, staying away, but I think I'm going to be called into action here pretty soon. But otherwise, things are relatively stable and good. So that's where we're at. How are you guys managing HCM patients at Tufts during this bizarre time? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the, the strategy that we've taken is probably similar to a lot of other places, including a lot of other HCM centers of excellence on the East Coast and otherwise, in the sense that what we're doing is doing the best that we can to avoid having patients come in for visits. We really don't want to necessarily increase exposure to patients for elective visits. Balancing that, of course, with the idea that some patients need to be seen and need to be evaluated and need to be reassured and and need input. And we're really trying our best to do telemedicine, to fill that gap. And we have a platform that we have available at our institution that's up and running that we are essentially getting going with. And so we're offering patients, all patients, new patients, follow-up patients, the opportunity to still interact with us at Tufts through the telemedicine platform, essentially. Of course, again, if patients really need to have a face-to-face, and there could be a number of reasons that that's the case still, then we're, of course, open for business and, and still seeing patients if we need to in the clinic, but we're preferring telemedicine. Of course, we've postponed almost all of our myectomy and alcohol ablation procedures since for the vast majority of patients with those situations, either myectomy or ablation, that's largely elective and can wait several weeks to a couple months to do it. So, you know, for those people, we're, we're pushing them off and rescheduling. I think that's wise. I think everybody thought I was a little bit of um, a panicker when about two weeks ago, I called you one morning and I'm like, all right, I think this is getting real. What are we doing? Are we reorganizing appointments? And you're like, I don't know. We haven't thought about it yet. And I spent that entire day calling everybody saying, what are you doing? The beginning of the day, people were saying, we haven't thought about it. And by the end of the day, it was like a a thunder and a, a rolling across the country. Everybody was developing plans that day. And we posted some guidance document that day just to give people an idea that we were thinking about them. And was it time for their myectomy or not? Or can they get another month out of their device? Can they wait at this point? So we're glad that you guys got on that and you have the telemedicine appointments, which has really been a godsend to a lot of people who are really worried and really wanted some reassurance. So that's awesome. I'm kind of hoping that we keep this telemedicine thing going because it's been really helpful to patients throughout the country who really would like expert opinion and just couldn't get access to it. Yeah, so- no, I, think, I think that's a good point. I just want to say, I think, well, let me just say two things real quick, if I can. First of all, I want to, you know, really commend you and the organization again for really being proactive, really in a way ahead of the game, you know, with respect to providing, you know, as much up-to-date information for the patients about COVID as, as humanly possible. You did that timely you did it accurately and effectively. And I think 
again, we all benefited from that. So I kind of want to thank you as always being on top of it and almost one step ahead of the game, which in this case was really, really important. Two is that your point about telemedicine is a really good one because I think this may actually, we may look back at some point on this period of time and say that this really did launch telemedicine to the level that a lot of us were hoping to see it at sooner rather than later. Certainly, it may take this kind of tragedy to elevate it to a point where it gets integrated in in a more routine way for people to access that really should access it and need to access expert opinions that can't get to places. So I think that's a really, really good point. And I think we are going to see that as a, as a result of COVID. I'm hoping so too. I've kind of been nudging people this way for a while and you got to look for your silver lining somewhere and maybe we're just going to have more people get access to better technology. So I wanted to talk about two topics with you that have been around a lot lately in the HCMA community. The first is a matter that you've spent a great deal of time studying and had some seminal papers published on, and that is the role of late gadolinium enhancement in a cardiac MRI, but dovetailing that into risk factors in general for sudden cardiac arrest in the face of HCM. So can you discuss a little bit about what SCAR means and what risk factors mean? So let me handle the the first question about late gadolinium enhancement. And let me do that by, for the audience, some may or may not be oriented with that topic at, at all. So let me just start really with the basic points there. And that's that we've known really since the beginning, going back 60 years, that the HCM heart has as part of it scar tissue that can form in the muscle for a variety of different reasons. But there is more scar in an HCM heart than a normal heart. And there's often more scar in an HCM heart than other forms of heart disease. And scarring is replacing normal tissue. And whenever you do that, you set up the opportunity for, I kind of make the analogy of faulty wiring in a house, for there to be a spark that could essentially trigger an abnormal rhythm. And these are the abnormal rhythms that can cause people to pass out, or if they don't stop in that situation, they can become life-threatening. The name is called ventricular tachycardia for those rhythms. And so scarring is a structural change that's part of HCM hearts that can be the nidus for triggering these arrhythmias. That's what we believe. And we, 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 know that, we know that to some degree, too, from other forms of heart disease, like when you've had a heart attack, scar tissue forms from a heart attack. And we know that when you've got a big scar from a heart attack, that increases the risk of these sudden death events from ventricular tachycardia. So we're extrapolating an HCM from other forms of heart disease, too, to make that point that scarring in the heart is bad. Okay, And there's a spectrum from a very little amount of scar to a lot. And we didn't really have the ability in a a live person to assess scar tissue until this technique with MRI emerged about 10 years ago, 10 to 15 years ago. And that technique is cardiac MRI with a contrast agent called gadolinium. And it's the gadolinium, which is introduced into the patient intravenously with an injection that actually is taken up into areas of scarring in the heart and then can be imaged as a picture with the MRI. And so we can now with MRI, and you can't get that information, the point is that you can't get that information about scarring with echo, 
okay, with the traditional ultrasound techniques. And so it's with MRI because it's got a higher spatial resolution, et cetera, that allows us to see that. And so with the gadolinium injection, we can see and actually quantify the amount of scarring in the heart muscle. And what we then did was do a number of investigations to ultimately see that or, or basically to uh, characterize that if you've got a lot of scar by MRI, and the scarring is called late gadolinium enhancement, that is scar. Late gadolinium enhancement is scar. The more late gadolinium enhancement you have, the higher your risk is of one of these arrhythmias. And so that really provided the information for late gadolinium enhancement or scarring by MRI to become one of the newer risk markers. It's a marker, imaging marker that helps us along with other imaging markers we'll talk about in a second to decide if a patient that we're seeing with HCM could be at risk in the future of a life-threatening rhythm. And so the more scar you have, the higher that risk can be. And so we look at that and other risk markers when we're ultimately deciding about risk for sudden death and the need for an ICD if we feel that risk is elevated enough that the patient would benefit from the protection provided by the ICD. Let me stop there for a second because we covered some ground there. Let's stop for a minute. We got there. Yes, we've definitely gotten there. So I want to dig into this question a little bit more because as you know, the HCMA has people from literally all over the country and the world coming in with reports that don't always have all the data on them and are suboptimal, I'll call them. In some cases, I'll call them garbage. And in other cases, I'll call them suboptimal. So is it important if you're going to have a test that's this specific to have that test with some center that has a specific protocol written and really understands what it is that they're looking for in HCM or is going to the MRI center down the street the same thing? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. It emphasizes, you know, one of the major, I think, principles that you have been talking about now for a long, long time. And that, that, in, and that is that in general, this is a disease where patients are best served by, evalu- by being evaluated at a center that has the level of expertise in all aspects of the disease. That now includes MRI. So that means that the strength of the evaluation that you get is really predicated on seeing at a center that has the ability to perform your echo and your MRI and all the other testing at the highest level so that you can integrate that information with an expert HCM cardiologist to give you the best piece of advice and management plan that you can get and that you need and deserve for this disease. And MRI being a newer technique that requires a little bit more expertise than perhaps ECHO, which has been around for 30 more years than MRI, that case is even stronger, uh, that case is even made stronger uh, that it be done at a center of expertise. The answer to your question is yes, that that you're going to get more robust, more reliable interpretation of your testing if it's done at a center of expertise or excellence. Center of excellence does matter. Kathy has a question. You had a recent echo and they used an enhancer. I'm guessing we use contrast agent that did not go through the kidneys. Is that the same thing? So I think you're talking contrast echo versus gadolinium. 
I'm sorry, this was a tracer that was used for MRI. Uh, no, Echo. Oh, Echo. Yeah, so different, those are different, totally different agents. Echo uses a different contrast agent than MRI. The one we used for Echo is usually uh, done to better define the borders of the heart muscle to make accurate as best we can measurements of the wall thickness but it's completely different material or substance than the one you're getting for MRI. There's no uptake into the myocardium itself with a contrast agent Correct. to GAD. Okay. And, and, and the one with echo doesn't affect the kidneys. So Wendy has a question. If a person already knows they have a rhythm in disease in HCM who has an MRI safe ICD and is on Xeralto, is there any benefit of having an MRI to get the LGE? Yeah, great. It's a it's a great question, Wendy. And I think the answer is that again, you have to individualize. You know, a lot of this stuff because there can be exceptions, of course. But in general, the answer to your question is no. You know, there's very little reason that a person like that or a patient like that would need to have an MRI if they already have an ICD. Because one of the most important questions being answered by the MRI is, do you or don't you need the ICD? So there's again some exceptions to that, but in general, that's the answer. So I'm going to dive in a little bit because sometimes I have a little knowledge that I know where the question might be going. Yeah. Is there a role for MRI? And this is, this is an honest question that I don't actually know the answer to at this point or how you're going to answer it. Uh, is there a value to using MRI to monitor the um, progression of disease, additional scar burden for the potential of being able to predict an end stage disease potentially? Well, I think that, that... So the, 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 if we just back up for one second, the other, you know, the other important issue that scarring goes to, it goes to two things. If you've got a lot of scarring in your heart by MRI, you could be at increased risk for abnormal arrhythmias. That's what we just said. That goes to the issue of do you or do you not need an ICD? The other thing that a lot of scarring can predict is progression of systolic function. So I'm meaning your part pump function. In a small number of HCM patients, they can experience a decrease in heart function over time. So that that squeeze, which is measured by ejection fraction, can decrease from normal to abnormal. And when that happens, that puts a patient with HCM at greater risk of heart failure symptoms, possible need for transplant and other things like that. And that's called end-stage HCM. Less than 5% of patients with the disease will ever have that. It's a small percentage, but that's the other important disease issue that scarring can predict, okay? With that background, you know, you're asking, should the MRI still be done then to look for scarring if you have an ICD to help inform that. And what I would say to that is that, that there can be other ways that we can get a sense of that happening besides having to do the MRI. And that would be to simply just track over time the ejection fraction on the echo. Because if that's starting to go down, you know it's going down because scarring could be increasing, okay? And then you can make a certain therapeutic decisions based on the ejection fraction in that situation, rather than having to subject a patient 
to a complicated imaging test like MRI if they already have a device in because it's complicated to do that. So you can you can track the echoes over time and watch that EF blunt and stay there or maybe drop. I, I don't know, maybe I've lived through this myself. Then right. maybe you could do a VO2 max and see what the path right. is. That's right. And then you could revisit that in a year later and see how bad the numbers look. That's and right. You talk to me in a hospital room and say, I got nothing left for you. And off I go to transplant. Well, but the point is that there are other tests that can be done yeah. to help inform if a patient's headed in that direction other than MRI. And I think uh, Wendy commented that she answered the follow-up question and she appreciated it. So I'm going to pivot and I'm going to ask this question in two ways because this came up earlier this week and I think somebody may have misspoke on something, but I'll let you address it. Does having septal myectomy have any relationship to scarring? And I'm going to ask this question in two ways. If somebody has, let's say, 14% scar noted on a recent high quality MRI with LGE and they're going for a myectomy and they happen to have scar in the septum and you're going to cut out that scar does that change the meaning of the scar right so good question the answer is that no okay it doesn't work that way okay it's the amount of scar in the heart before surgery that is the most important predictor of risk in the future of arrhythmias the other point to remember here is that when you're going in for myectomy the reality is, is that you are taking out only a very small amount of tissue. People have the, you know, I understand this, patients have the perception that it's a, it's a large amount of muscle, but it's not. It's, it's really, for those that like numbers, it's three, to, it's three to 10 grams. So it's not that much. So even if, you, you know, you wouldn't even be taking out that much scarring with the muscle being resected during surgery anyways, but the bottom line is that we look at pre-surgery scar amount to determine ICD. Okay, so let's talk apical aneurysms for a minute. How do you best visualize an apical aneurysm? And what's the role of MRI there? Yeah, so great question there. You know, for, for again, for those that are listening that may not quite know what that means, there's a small number of patients with HCM that can develop over time an aneurysm at the tip of the heart, what we call the apex. Aneurysms are just areas of thinning. They can be in the heart, they can be in the, in the blood vessels, they can be in the head. In this case, it's a thinning of muscle at the tip of the heart that we call an apical aneurysm. When you have that with HCM, that means that you are at a much greater risk of life-threatening arrhythmias and stroke because of the propensity to develop clots in the aneurysm. So it's really important, therefore, to identify reliably if a patient with HCM has an aneurysm or not. And the best way to do it, by far, is an MRI, because it gives us the best pictures and visualization of the tip of the heart, of the apex. Alternatively, if you can't have an MRI or you know there just isn't the expertise to get it done where you are then then the second best option is an echocardiogram with the contrast though it's got to be with the contrast agent which is safe but that can also identify the aneurysms those are the two best ways fantastic questions and answers and now we're asking how do you know if you have a device that is mri safe 
So whether you have a pacemaker or a defibrillator and what really comes down to the risk? Is it the generator itself or is it the leads or is it a combination thereof? People have the perception and I understand how you, you could that if you have an, a, a pacemaker or an ICD that you're going to go in, if you go in and have an MRI and it's not compatible, that it's going to come out of your chest or it's gonna lift you up into the magnet. That's not the problem. The problem here actually is that if you have a pacemaker or an MRI that's not compatible with an MRI, an ICD or a pacemaker that's not MRI compatible, sorry, then what the concern is, is that the magnetic energy of the MRI can change the settings and also the sensitivities of the lead tips so that you may not have a properly functioning MR, uh, ICD or pacemaker device if you go through one of those tests in the MRI. It's, that's the issue. It can impact the effectiveness of these devices from working right, which obviously is a huge problem. That's the biggest concern. That's why it's really important that if you have leads or uh, a pacemaker or MRI that you let your doctor or the MRI unit know the model and make so that they can tell you whether it is or isn't compatible with an MRI. And if you have any abandoned leads in your chest, you can't do MRI because that right. connects like an antenna. That's right, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly correct. Okay, yeah. so I've, I've stolen a few people's questions. Wanda, I am going to rephrase your question because it's a little too patient specific and I'm going to add some generalities into this and I'm going to break it up into a couple of questions. So somebody's re recovering from an ICD, but I want you to address a line here that I think is a little confused. Would somebody get an ICD because of chest pain that is definitively attributed to scar? Are, they, are we dealing with symptoms versus risk? And are we confusing the two a little bit? That would be confusing, you know, two issues here. That would be confusing chest pain, which is a symptom, and saying that that automatically equates to a lot of scar in the heart muscle. And those two are not equivalent. They're just not. You can have a lot of chest pain because of HCM and actually not have a lot of scar. Or any at all. Or any at all. That's exactly right. And vice versa which is why chest pain symptom is not one of the risk factors for determining whether a patient should have an ICD. It's not on the list for that reason. What is on the list is, as we talked about just a minute ago, scarring, okay? And that is assessed not through symptoms, but through imaging, through the MRI. And it's only through that technique can you quantify the amount of scar as a risk factor for needing an ICD, independent of chest pain. Okay, thank you. Now, there's another question in this question and it has, it's a COVID question. Should somebody who received an ICD in the past, let's say 60 days and has generally stable HCM use any additional precautions over that which everybody else should be using right now for COVID? I don't, I, don't, I don't have any rationale for saying that there should be additional precautions taken for a patient like that. There, there, there just would be no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a, a basis for that. 
So the, the question here is, should they be isolated for three months? I don't know that we know anybody should be isolated for three months at this point in time. Um, I'm a transplant patient. I'm considered to be higher risk than typical because I have no immune system to speak of. I've not been told I should be quarantined for three months. I've told stay, stay put for another week or two and then we'll reassess, but I don't think anybody's been told three months at this time. Yeah, and, and remember with indwelling devices, when they get infected, it's usually bacteria that infect it, okay? COVID is a virus. It's true, you can have COVID and then get another infection on top of that, like a bacterial infection, Right. but not everybody. In fact, most are just, not just, but most patients with COVID are dealing with the viral infection. So just remember, there's two different ball games there, virus versus bacterial infections. Here's a name that you know, so you remember them. How often do you recommend MRIs being done? Is this something we should be doing every two, three, five, eight, ten years? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, which doesn't surprise me because the Tuckers are uh, all over it and they know a lot. So it doesn't surprise me that that kind of question would come from Tuckers. So the answer is that we don't actually know, to be honest yet, the frequency that MRIs should be done because it's a new technique and we just haven't had the follow up that you sort of require to know about frequency. What, what we're saying as experts is every three to five years, it should be repeated to reassess the amount of scar. Every year or every two years, is, I think too soon to see a change. So three to five is my answer. So... We know that there is something in the works that was, should be at the end of the year, and that's a new update on the guidelines for HCM. I'm hoping there'll be some direction in terms of frequency of MRI in that document. I know you can't really comment too much about specifics on the document, but we hope that we can. I, can't, I can't comment on specifics, as you said, obviously, but, but what I can say is that in general terms, these guidelines, which will be out in the fall, and it's been 10 years since the last guidelines, will have, a, I think, a lot more information about MRI and HCM to help us. Okay. We have an interesting question here. Does AFib have anything to do with increased risk of an apical aneurysm? No, no. HCM patients with apical aneurysm are, are about at the same risk of having atrial fibrillation as all HCM patients. Which is about 20%, correct? Well, it's 20. Yeah. So to be clear, it, it, you know, what we say is that for an ATM patient, you have a 20% chance in your lifetime of having one episode or more of atrial fibrillation. It's a lifetime risk. Joe wants to know, does scarring show on, shown on the MRI in a person with, I believe what they're talking about is latent obstruction. So some, is there any different degree of scarring in those with obstruction versus not, I think would be. Yeah, that's a great question. And the answer is actually this. It's interesting. If you have obstruction, you actually have less scarring on average than a patient with HCM who has who doesn't have obstruction. Okay. So in other words, non-obstructive patients generally have a little bit more scarring than obstructive patients. Why that is, I don't know exactly, but the, one of the reasons that surgery to relieve obstruction, I think, is so successful is that there isn't a lot of scarring in those patients. 
and therefore their ability, their contractual function is, is, is in fact not impacted by scar at all. Bottom line is if you've got obstruction, you're less likely to have a lot of scar, which is good. Yeah, I, I hadn't stopped and thought about that. And as you're saying, and I'm going through a bunch of reports in my brain, I'm going, you know, there's something to that. That's interesting. So here was the, one of the early questions that um, didn't show up in the feed and now is here. And this is for like inquiring minds who are watching right now because there's a hint behind you. Can HCM people use the Peloton bike that's sitting behind you? Please note there's none behind me. I don't have HCM, but you have a Peloton bike, as you can see. Well, yeah, so I think the question is really not so much about the Peloton bike specifically as it is about exercise, I, I think, in HCM. So let's just, you know, let's talk about that for a minute, maybe. Sure. And then we can specifically, you know, tie it in to stationary bike like the Peloton. This is what I say, okay, to, to, about this is mild to moderate recreational aerobic activity is permissible and encouraged in, in HCM patients. We want patients to stay active, to stay healthy, to stay balanced. And then the question is, what's the definition of mild to moderate activity? And there's no clear line in the sand there. I mean, you can imagine that it's, it's, it's a little bit of a moving target. But what I say is, that at peak exercise, for example, if you're on the Peloton at peak exercise, you should be able to have a full conversation without straining to complete words or sentences if theoretically somebody was next to you. In other words, it's about intensity more than it is anything else. So as long as you're in control enough to complete words and sentences without straining to do so, that's okay, in my view. That allows a patient with HCM to have an aerobic workout that can burn calories, maintain balance in their life, physical activity balance, without increasing risk. You want to stay hydrated the whole time as best you can, and you want to avoid, while you're doing those kinds of activities, things like burst exertion. You know, that's the kind of stuff that gets us nervous is the zero to 60 kind of stuff. So interval training, stadium steps, burst on the bike. That isn't good. Always steady, even, and in control. If you want to do that on a Peloton and you're staying within those boundaries, go for that. So using that philosophy, there are different types of exercise programs. And yeah. by no means do I mean to disparage any particular company or product. Yeah. But things like Orange Theory, where you're pushing to get to a target heart rate and stay at that target heart rate for as long as possible. What do you think about that for patients with HCL? Well, so gonna, I, think have, we, I think what I usually say is you have to take what I just said and you have to apply it to all of these different possibilities out there today. And they're endless. Orange theory is just one. Right. But, you know, what I would say about orange theory, and I think you described it well, is that's the kind of thing that concerns me. I mean, you know, it's pretty intense. It often involves burst. And it often involves longer periods at very high intensity, right? So I usually say orange theory to me falls outside the bounds that I just said for safety. Joe just asked, what about weightlifting? Well, weightlifting, I think what we, you know, again, there's a, like everything, there's a spectrum. And I think what I would say is weightlifting for strength, for power, where you're, bearing down 
and releasing a lot of adrenaline, you know, on the last couple of reps is no good. That's a, that's a concern. If it's really light, light lit weights where, you know, again, you're able to complete sentences and in control and it's really purely for keeping some tone, that's okay, I think. You know, that falls within the safety realm. Are free weights versus stationary weights or machines, is there a difference? It's less about that than it is about the, the intensity to which you're doing it. Either one, if you're bearing down and straining to get the weight up, whether it's free or you know part of a machine, is still the same intensity that falls outside the bounds of safety. Okay. Can you still see the scarring as well in patients with an MRI and ICD versus patients without one? I think I remember an artifact being mentioned on my 14-year-old before he got his. So does the actual can alter the images at all or the, or the leap? Right. So that's a, yeah, that's a really good question. And the answer is that, yes, it can. I mean, if you have a, a lead from an ICD in and, you, and it's MRI compatible and you get an MRI, there's still a possibility that you can have artifact, imaging artifact related to that lead that could, it depends, there's a lot of variability here, but it could impact image quality, the artifact, and therefore could make it difficult to assess reliably the amount of scar. So that's possible. The only, unfortunately, the only real way to know because there is so much individual variability with that is to, is to do it. I mean, there's no way to know beforehand if it's going to impact, you know, to a point where it's not worth doing or not. So you, but I would say this, you really should have a very good reason to do that study because of those issues. And we talked earlier about alternative evaluate heart right. function and the structure right. of the myocardium and how it's holding up. Right. So this is a little bit of a tricky question and I, I'm just going to ask it in a different way. Uh, everybody likes to name HCM different things, apical HCM, hypertrophic obstructive HCM, septal wall HCM. And they think the definition of the HCM comes from where the hypertrophy happens to be located, whether it's in the septum, in the apex, on the free wall, the lateral wall. Can you address the different names of HCM and how they're all alike? Well, I think it is confusing. And we we have a problem, meaning the medical community, with nomenclature. I think that's what you're saying, yeah. you know. And it's been an historic problem in this disease going back since day one. The disease itself has been called a lot of different things, and now we've got different names for different locations of hypertrophy. It's very confusing, and uh, I feel bad about that. That's something that the, the physician community you know, should probably have done a better job with. With that said, you know, I think make it simple. I like to make it simple. There really is one nomenclature, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, HCM. That's the name. Within that, there are two forms. There is obstructive HCM and non-obstructive HCM. Where you have the hypertrophy, where it's located exactly in the heart and attaching a name to that doesn't really change anything here, to be honest. We still do the same evaluation. You still get the same testing, et cetera. So I would, you know, do your best to, to try to move beyond nomenclature and just think of it in terms of HCM. It's so, one disease. 
so this comes up most often in apical HCF that yeah. they're rare because it's apical. I don't see apical as rare from my vantage point, And I don't think you think it's rare either. What, what's going on with apical HCF? Uh, you know, it, it get apical, ap attaching the gear. So this is a good example. It's attaching a name before HCM, apical HCM. And all we're doing there is saying that the increase in the thickness in those patients is at the tip of the heart as opposed to other locations. Still HCM, still the same disease caused by the same type of mutations as, as HCM uh, or wall thickness in any other area. You know, I think what happened there is it, it's unique to look at imaging wise when you have thickness just at the tip, it's sort of striking a little bit visually. So it got a special name that way and it got classified and separated out, I think largely because of the visibility of the location being more striking to the eye than anything else. But same disease, same, same strategies apply. It is true, it is true though, that for that group of patients, because it got separated out long ago in the sense of a name, it also got looked at separately with studies. And it's true that in general, if you have apical HCM, your risk of symptoms or arrhythmias is less than if you have other forms of HCM. Less, not zero, but less, that's all. Can you have obstruction with apical HCM? You, you can, but it's uncommon. You can, but uncommon. Okay. This podcast was made possible by funding from Invitae, providing genetic testing services to the HCM community and other genetic disorders. For more information, visit 4hcm.org. Uh, we're going to go back to the weight loss issue or exercise issue. And Carol wants to know if you have any recommendations for postmenopausal women on, on metropolol uh, for weight loss. Carol. That was painful. You're oh. outside my box, as they say. I, I don't. I'm not sure about how to answer. I'm being honest. I'm not sure how to answer that in a way that's going to be helpful for you. I think the best thing to do is, is to try to get access to, you know, experts in weight loss, whether it's with a nutritionist through your primary care. And then once somebody is suggesting a weight loss program for you to make sure that that weight loss program or aspects of that weight loss program are okay from an HCM standpoint, they, they should be, but that's how I would handle that. I think that's an excellent way to handle that. I would encourage um, everybody of, of my age, really do go work with a weight loss specialist. I found one down at Morristown who was fabulous. And it turned out that I wasn't crazy. I was doing everything right, but my body wasn't doing everything right. I was insulin resistant, not diabetic. My sugar levels were fine, but my insulin levels were four or five times normal um, when they got tested. And thereby, I was not able to lose weight. And I learned through some research, this is a very common uh, metabolic phenomena that occurs in postmenopausal women. A uh, little metformin and a, a couple of changes to my diet, and I dropped the weight. So, just but you agree? I mean, it's a war, right? Weight oh. loss—it's a war. I get it, and I think you need help. In a war, you need help. What do you What do you think, Lisa, about that? I mean, is that something that, that you would Google weight loss reduction centers in, in a patient's area to try to get access to experts there? What I recommend you do is look, if you're going to a center of excellence, go within that center of excellence. Almost every center of excellence has a weight loss department in right. the facility. Right. That way, if they decide that weight loss surgery is what you need, 
they can consult with your HCM specialist and they're all in-house. Your records are there. You've got cardiac anesthesiology for oversight. We discussed that a little bit earlier with Mark Sherrod, the, you know, other things that can happen with HCM. Um, we've had many people do gastric bypass or actually gastric sleeve more commonly today, and they're doing really great and they've lost weight. Um, myself, it was just some, you know, metformin that I needed to regulate my insulin, but there are specialists. Um, you might have to fight with your insurance company a little bit if it's, you know, not in your uh, benefits package, but they want you to lose weight. Most insurance companies are encouraging weight loss because they know long-term brings down your, your expenditures and they like that. So, um, I would just not accept that the stuff that you see on TV and all the supplements and stuff, they're not for you do this smart. We actually have a lovely lady who is a member of the team, meaning she's an HCMA uh, member who has spoken on this before. Um, and hopefully we'll get her to speak about it again, but she's a little bit busy now waiting for her own heart. Uh, and she's a dietitian and uh, she's given some really good tips on this. So I would encourage, maybe we can get her back on here for a, a chat. I mean, your protocol thing though, I mean, if you're going to go, if you have HCM, you want to go to an HCM center of excellence because you deserve to have the experts weighing in on that weight loss is a different war and you need experts to help you you know sometimes the use of diuretics can be really tricky in weight loss yeah. because if you're an obstructed person and they throw you on diuretics because they think you have a little fluid on you it can actually make your obstruction worse right correct and then on the converse maybe you're hiding fluid in weird places and right. you might be hiding heart failure and you can hide it in your abdomen, in, in your chest, and you can put it in your arms or your legs. And it can be very diffuse. Yeah. It's not like pooling, like congestive heart failure. Right. The HCM team can work with the weight loss team and say, how much is fluid overload? How much is that? How much do we have to lose? And what's the safest way to get you there? Yeah, it's a team effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, we got a couple more questions. I think we're going back to COVID world. If someone has HCM and does get the virus bad, is there anything special that the doctor should know about? My first recommendation was you show up in an ER, you're COVID positive. You tell them I have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and here's my cardiologist's name. Off to you, Marty. What else would you do? I'd like to just say, you know, the, just to provide some reassurance here a little bit that for the vast majority of patients with HCM, if you were to get COVID, I have no evidence or rationale to think that your clinical course would be worse than somebody of the same age without HCM. There are probably some small number of patients with HCM, depending on the circumstances that that, that patient has, you know, with respect to their HCM, where they could be at greater risk for some complications. So I do think it, what I guess my point is, is that you know, you're hearing that heart disease increases the risk with COVID. That's a general term, heart disease, of course. I think for us as the HCM community, my take is the vast majority of patients with this disease would have a course that would be no different. There are some exceptions to that, but for the most, it would be no different. Okay. And I think that's a point of reassurance. That's, that's my take on it. But if you have HCM and you get COVID, then you of course need to let your HCM physician know immediately so that they can work in conjunction with the other doctors 
to provide the best plan for you. This morning, we talked to Jacopo Alavato from uh, Florence, who shared with us some of his perspectives of being in Italy and being an HCM physician. And there was mostly good news here. So there's over 50,000 people in Italy that are affected with COVID. And that would mean statistically that there'd be over 100 people with HCM in that population. There was nothing that Jacopo was aware of specifically in HCM patients that they did any worse or any better than anybody else. There was one known death, but it was an elderly man with comorbidities. And I mean, he was in 80s plus, it sounded like, with other things going on, HCM and COVID. And of course, that would be the highest level of risk of an individual that we know of. Right. So everybody else seemed to be doing okay so far. Uh, Mark Sherrod has a couple people who just have regular old, you know, little um, virus, nothing serious. Um, we even know of an HCM doc who's got it and they're doing okay too. It doesn't have to be doom and gloom. So, so don't panic. That's right. I got another question here from Kathy. Do you suggest starting Coumadin during the time of COVID when you've been taking Eliquis for a long time? So I think to generalize that question a little bit is now the time for anybody in HCM to make major shifts in medical management that might require them or land them unintentionally in need of emergency services? Or should they stick with what's been working? Obviously, you know, there could be exceptions here. You know, there's probably a lot of different scenarios, but I would say as a general rule to continue sticking with what's working. Yeah, generally, but I, that's a case by case. What about transplant and COVID? Well, you know, you, you could probably comment on this. You, you know, you're, you've been getting some information. I mean, again, we're, we're at a point in time where there's a lot of things being talked about. We don't know whether any of this is true or not true. There, you know, there's some suggestion, actually, that transplant patients may be at less risk for the most severe complications of COVID, this acute lung injury situation, what we call ARDS, because of the transplant drugs can actually mitigate, again, theoretically, the uh, immune response to the virus that's causing a lot of these acute respiratory failure deaths. Whether that's true, we don't know, but there's some things floating out there that transplant patients may be actually more protected because from the of the critical impact to the lung. Exactly, from that aspect, that's right. So we I'll thought at that. first it was almost a death sentence if we got it, but it turned yeah. out that within cyclosporine and tacrolimus, the anti-rejection meds for those who don't take it, the property in which they deal with inflammation on a regular basis actually might help the lungs not have the negative response. We can have a lot of other side effects from COVID, but it looks like our lungs might be a tad bit protected. And then the next question I was asked by people were, oh, can I get on your transplant meds? And the answer is, hell, you don't wanna do that, no. no. Um, and that's, they're very expensive drugs and they're in shortage anyway. Right. So. That's it right. just means that we're not quite as in trouble as we thought we might be in the transplant community. Uh, and I'm really happy to say that I'm involved in a very, I, I never thought I could say these words, a very academically vigorous 
Facebook group of healthcare professionals from around the world who are sharing in real time their experiences. And Dr. Eric Adler, who we had on earlier in the week, is helping to coordinate those efforts of all of those different ideas that are coming in from around the world. And they're segregating them out to subspecialists and vetting the information and trying to, to clear the pathway of discovery. Um, so that's where we got some of this information from. Um, so I will leave that one there. Um, hi, joined late. We're not going to go back and answer questions that we've already answered because in a few minutes, you'll be able to review this at any time on Facebook and fast forward through us. If you don't want to hear a certain thing, you can just zip right past, use it as a podcast while you're taking a walk, hopefully outside and getting some fresh air. But I will uh, kind of wrap up here because we've been chatting for almost an hour here, actually an hour now. But I want to talk a little bit about the future and what do you see coming down the pike? I know we've got some really exciting things poised, ready to go as soon as this all clears up. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I think most relevant to that question are the efforts that have been going on and are continuing to go on. They're paused right now, but will go on again once you know the COVID situation improves, is the investigation of a new class of drugs for HCM. Exciting times. The name of the class of drugs are called myosin inhibitor, myosin inhibitors. And these are, this is a pill. And the drug is directly targeting the muscle apparatus. And essentially what it's doing is it's dialing down the force of contractility of the HCM heart. And why is that important? That's important because if, we, if you have a drug that does that, like these myosin inhibitors, you can, as a result, decrease the obstruction. Okay, so these are drugs that are first being investigated in obstructive HCM to improve symptoms that are due to obstruction by dialing down contractility, which results in a lowering of the gradient. And if these drugs can do that reliably, and effectively over time without causing concerns for safety, then that would be another drug that would be available to help improve symptoms in those with obstructive HCM. We should know the answer to the first version of that drug about whether it works and what the safety implications are within the next year or two. That's that drug, exciting. Yeah. I think somewhere in that one to year, one to two year time frame. I actually have a call tomorrow with a couple of people on this topic as well. The HCMA is very excited to help the research community recruit and learn as fast as possible and, and get these trials populated and completed so that they can be analyzed and we can see who can really be served by these new agents. So, so um, on, that note, on that note, the second version of the myosin inhibitor is under clinical trials right now. It's paused because of COVID, but when it when COVID improves, it'll restart in a number of centers in the United States. So if you're a symptomatic obstructed patient and you're interested 
in a clinical trial to see if you can get improvement with one of, with this new drug, then I suggest touching base with the HCMA who can help direct you. We will have all the information as soon as recruitment starts. It will all be on the website and we'll be sending out emails. Um, I would encourage everybody who's watching this to make sure that they like the Facebook page because we do a lot of announcements on Facebook and then we put them out on Twitter and then they go on, on Instagram and then they go to LinkedIn and then they're on the website. We're trying to get you information any which way we can. So this is really, really important. I'm going to um, segue for just one second. And I just put a posting up here. At least I think I did. I am posting for all of you sewers out there the link to Joanne's fabric. So if you have nothing to do while you're home with COVID and you have a sewing machine, you can make masks for our medical professionals who are in need of PPE, personal protective equipment, so that they can stay safe and they can serve you. Um, I saw, I get Boston News in my feed because I don't know why, but I do. And I saw the um, Dunkin' Donuts truck outside of Tufts offering free donuts and coffee to all the healthcare workers. They're being great and stepping up while you guys are putting in very strange and extra hours and putting yourself in harm's way to protect us. So um, if anybody has the time or the availability, please go ahead and uh, use that link. And there's other ones out there too that have ties, not elastic, because elastic, I guess, is in short supply right now. We, I really feel like we're talking wartime things here. So we can do that. Anything else you want to say before you run back to your family and go back into COVID hibernation? No, I just want to thank you, you know, for setting these up. And I look forward to any time doing it again with you. Always an honor to do that. I wanted to thank you for, again, everything you're doing to keep the HCM community educated, aware, and, and in, that, in that sense, safe with all of the efforts that you're doing. So I want to thank you and your team. You guys, you deserve a huge shout out as well. So thank, thank you. Very much. We're doing as best we can under those very strange circumstances, and we will continue this series. Most importantly, our best to your dad and to your family, and stay well and stay away from the virus, and don't let your little ones get it either. Well, thank you, and and, and again, everybody stay safe. So important. So, thanks. The HCMA would like to thank Rode Microphones for their support of this podcast. Rode Microphones generously donated the Rodecaster Pro soundboard to help make this podcast possible and to help us sound so good. Thank you, Rode Microphones, for your support.